Well, welcome. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Heath. I have the joy of being a pastor here, and we are in a series right now that's, that's uh, called The Garden in Reverse. We've been going through the book of John for quite some time, and we're going to go further into it today. And the, the, the weather is quite perfect for this passage. Uh, this bleak weather matches where we're going with the sermon, but I have really good news for you all today. Really good news from John chapter 19. So would you do this? Would you stand with me? If you are able, if you can't, that's fine. But if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Let's honor the word of the Lord. This is John chapter 19, starting at verse 17. Here's what it says. So they took Jesus And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the grace of gathering here today. Thank you for the grace of gathering to sing and to hear your word and to come to your table of grace. We know that this is a sacred and holy moment presided over by the power of your spirit. Father, I ask that you would grant me the grace uh, to preach in a way that is beautiful, good, and true, that Christ would be honored and our hearts would be warmed and grow in love and affection for who you are. So lead us on. Help me to be a help to my brothers and sisters today. We love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All of us. This is for all of us. What John, the author of the Gospel of John, writes here in chapter 19 about the crucifixion of Jesus is for all of us. The cross is for all of us. And this means probably what you are thinking when I say the cross is for all of us. And yet there's probably something else that you are not yet thinking that this means. And so we're going to address both of those today, the obvious and the veiled. So as we get into our text, first thing we need to remember is this, that the Gospel of John is the last of the Gospels, the last of the four Gospels that is written. So John is most likely in his late 70s or his early 80s when he's writing this text. This means that John had somewhere between 40 to 50 plus years to meditate on who Jesus is and and what he has done to meditate on the life of Christ, to see degree by degree how Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all of those foreshadows, of all of those 
promises that are in the scriptures. He had all these decades to see the innumerable connections from Genesis on that pointed to how Jesus was the long-awaited king, how he was the Messiah, how he was the one who would bring renewal to a wrecked world. And so when he writes his gospel, he includes a number of things that aren't included in the other gospels. If you've read all four, you might notice that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're very similar in many ways. There's some differences, but they're very similar But John includes things that aren't in the other Gospels. He wants us to see things after he's had a lot of time to meditate on them. And in John's account of the crucifixion, we learn something important about the sign that is put above Jesus. And John wants us to pay attention to it. He seems to think it's good for our souls. So again, let's go to that unbearable Good Friday morning and then work through our text. Peace by peace. So back to that morning, that Good Friday morning. The mad back and forth between the Roman power broker and moral coward named Pilate and the envious bloodlusting religious leaders has finally come to an end. The chess match is over. Pilate is now bowing to the political threat that is before him and he has condemned Jesus to die on a Roman cross. And so we read in verse 17, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which, is Aramaic, which in Aramaic is Golgotha, to the place of a or the skull. Now, out comes Jesus from Pilate's posh headquarters. And out from the city, he comes to a place known as the Skull. I mean, right away, this passage is is heavy, right? It's heavy with death. Now, Jesus would have been carrying the cross beam, the horizontal beam, the patabulum across his shoulders, and the weight of humanity's broken condition was pushing down on him with each step. Now, There would have been onlookers to this parade, to this morbid parade. As he went through the city and on out to the city, there would have been people on each side watching this dead man walking, right? Watching this bruised and battered man on his way to his execution. So Jesus is on his way to the place of the skull. Now our text calls it Golgotha. That's an Aramaic word which comes from the Hebrew word Golgolet, which means skull, Aramaic and Hebrew, they're, they're, they're similar languages, they're cognates, they're cousins. Uh, but we also get a word Calvary from this word skull. The word Calvary, Calvaria, is a Latin word that means um, bald head or skull. Okay, that's where we get the term Calvary. Now, whether or not this place is called Calvary because geographically it resembles a skull, like like many people think, or whether it's because of an ancient myth that you can go through church history and find that it's this ancient myth that Adam's skull was buried underneath Golgotha there, was buried in that hill. Either way, whatever the answer is, it's a place of death, right? We know that much. It's a place of death. It was a popular place to crucify people because it was on a main artery, a main highway into the main city, Jerusalem. It was a highway there, so it was perfect for maximum shaming. 
So verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Okay, so John also tells us that Jesus was crucified with two criminals, two lestai, um, those are insurrectionists or guerrilla fighters, two guerrilla fighters. And these two men were charged with treason against Rome. And John makes special note that Jesus was between the two guilty men. And it's interesting, the word here uh, is often a word that's used for the word middle. So it's not just simply between but it's this word that is, is used for the, to be in the middle of something. So Jesus is in the middle of these two guilty men. Jesus is in the middle of the guilt, on top of the hill of death. Okay. He's in the middle. By the way, a little Easter egg thing. I won't have time for this one, but go back to the garden and this, this word in Greek, when it's translated from Hebrew into Greek, this word is in the, in the beginning there, in the middle. The tree of life is in the middle. And here we have Jesus at the tree bringing life to overcome what Adam and Eve had done at the tree that was in the middle, in the middle of God's garden. Now in the middle of this sin is Christ to redeem and to restore and to reverse the curse from Genesis 3. Spend some time on that this week. We don't have time this morning, unfortunately. Okay. But here we see Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant being fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 12 talks about the Messiah, the the one who would come to suffer, to make things right. And he says that he, the Messiah, poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is right there amidst them. He is counted among them. He is counted as guilty, though he is not. So this is a fulfillment of prophecy. John wants us to see that, how all the scriptures interweave and work together to point us to Jesus. Now, John tells us something new here. This is fascinating. Something we have to chew on, to swallow, to, to metabolize, to get into us as followers of Jesus, as his apprentices. So look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote in its inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, right, on that artery, that highway. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Okay, so um, have you ever seen uh, a statue or a picture of Jesus and there's a little placard over him and it says, Inri? I-N-R-I, I-N-R-I, that's, that's Latin, that's the, this Latin term, Jesus Nazar- Nazarenus Rex Iodiarum, which means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that comes from this passage and other passages, but John tells us that it was actually written in three different languages, and so we're going to talk about this. Here's, here's what the sign probably looked like, we have a picture of it. Um, that's the Aramaic or Hebrew up top. The middle one is actually the Greek, and the bottom one is Latin. See the bottom one? If you take the the first letter of each one of those words, I-N-R-I, Inri, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. That's why you see that on statues all over the place. So three different languages there. Um, Why would Pilate do this? Why did Pilate do this? Why this sign? Well, a few reasons. The first reason is 
because this is what they did for crucifixions. This was very normal. Sometimes we think he just did this because this was Jesus, but actually this was customary when somebody was being crucified. Um, This is called uh, a a titulos, or kerographon, which means a handwriting. Titulos is where we get the word title. It was a placard that was put on a cross. Uh, Why? Why was this a normal thing? Well, what were crucifixions for? Tell tell me one thing that crucifixion was for. Punishment. Death. It was also for shaming. And it was also a warning, right? It was... It was a warning. It was to threaten. It was, it was to bully everyone. It was to inculcate fear in everyone who would walk by. So what they would do is they would set the person's charges on a plaque like this. And then when that person was hanging on that cross, that plaque would be over them. So let's say, I don't know, it's a guy named Yuval. Yuval, son of Shimon. And he was a murderer. Yuval would have a plaque over his head that said Yuval. Murderer, right? That was his charge. That's why he was being crucified. So Yuval, son of Shimon, murderer. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's the official charge. And not only would they put the sign up on the cross, while they carried that cross beam up to the hill, they would have it hanging on their neck. So remember that whole morbid parade we talked about? Everyone who saw this person walk by would see why they were being crucified. Right? This was Rome flexing, like, don't mess with us. If you do this, or you do this, or you do that, you get this. Don't, don't mess with us. So the sign is an official charge against Jesus. And what's his crime? He's the king of the Jews. So the technicality, the, the, the reason he was crucified, so to speak, judicially under Pilate was treason, sedition, for claiming the throne. But there's a second reason why Pilate does this with the sign. It was an act of spite. It was an act of spite. It was sheer malice. This is Pilate sneering at the Jews in public. Pilate's ticked. He's ticked. He just got totally played by these religious leaders. He was forced into doing something he did not want to do. He had declared Jesus not guilty, right? Not guilty. So Pilate wasn't going to roll over. He wasn't used to rolling over. He's a headstrong power player in the Roman occupation machine. So Pilate's going to get back at them. And what does he do? Well, he does a revenge tweet. That's what this is, in a sense. This sign that's put on Jesus, that's put up on the cross, it's a weapon. It's a public sneer to mock and to shame The Jews, this is your king. You wretched, pitiable people, like this is the best you got? This is your king. He's nothing compared to the king that is in Rome. So this is Pilate's way of insulting them. He's getting back at them. All right. Look at verse 21. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews. But rather, right, this man said he was king of the Jews, because he's not. And Pilate answered them, what I've written, I've written. Done. Stop asking. So, look, the the religious leaders, they're insulted, they're they're irate, 
They object, they tell Pilate to change this, and the, the Greek language captures something in here that we lose in English. Um, the word where it says, they said to him, well, that's an imperfect word, which means they kept saying, they kept coming to him, saying, you gotta change this, you gotta change this, you gotta change this, this is not a one-time thing. They kept coming to him and saying, pull that thing down, and he's like, not gonna happen. I've written what I have written. Pilate, sticking to his guns, right? No change in this. Behold, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So there you have it. That is the essence of what the text says. But the text has some things in it that it wants to say to us that that I believe we really need to hear. The text is speaking to us. It's speaking to all of us. So let's, let's press in. Let's look a little bit deeper. John tells us that this sign was trilingual, right? Trilingual. Help me out. What were the three languages? Latin, Aramaic, slash Hebrew, and Greek. Yes, that's right. Aramaic, slash Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So Aramaic, slash Hebrew, was the language of God's people. It was the local language, right? Latin was the language of Rome. It was the language of policy. It was the language of the military. And Greek. Greek was the language of the entire Roman Empire. It was the lingua franca of culture at large. It was the language of the world and culture. So in other words, Pilate is making darn sure that everybody who walked by that cross could read his sneering sign. Again, he's publicly shaming the Jews. Because these are the three languages of the day in this part of the world. It's, again, it's Pilate's way of shouting. By putting it in three languages, it's his way of shouting. It's his megaphone. But here's the thing, here's the glorious thing about a good God. He uses what is meant for evil for, for good. He uses what is intended to be for malice to be a vehicle of mercy. He turns man's violence into the victory of God. He turns Pilate's revenge tweet to announce the true king. He uses Pilate's stinging pride to proclaim our humble and glorious Savior. It's incredible. So good. Now, here is why John's inclusion of the sign being trilingual is so key for us. It's key for us, and the sign is for all of us, because the cross is for all of us. The cross is for all of us. The cross of Jesus saves us. The cross that is planted on Death Mountain here does not just bring the Jewish people to life or bring them salvation, but it's for everyone, right? The cross is for all the world. The cross may be planted there in the particular soil of Jerusalem, but its victory reaches to Athens, to Rome, to Calcutta, to Nairobi, to New York, to Guatemala City, to Emeryville, to Ensenada, all the way all the way across the world, right? The cross is rooted in that particular soil, but its fruitful branches go to all the tribes and all the tongues and all the nations across the globe. See, the declaration of Jesus as king enthroned upon his cross is, is multilingual. So you could say that the cross spoke tongues before the church ever did. The cross spoke tongues before the church ever did in the book of Acts. The cross spoke tongues so the church could speak 
tongues, the tongues of good news to all the nations. The cross spoke to the nations. The cross spoke to the nations so the church could speak to the nations. So the cross was the instrument of salvation for all the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It was always the case, by the way, that every nation would be blessed through God's people, through God's plan, right? So rewind with me, just again, so we can link the whole arc of the story together. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is God making a promise to Abraham. And here's what it says. This is God speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth, they will be blessed through you. They will be blessed through you. And who's his son, by the way, that that blessing will come through? Remember his name? Abraham's son? Isaac. Just quick little side connection here. Isaac carries a bunch of wood up a hill, right? Carries a bunch of wood up a hill. By the way, Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham came to the Gentiles. So Paul tells us the blessing that is talked about in Genesis here comes through Jesus. Jesus is the son who carries the wood up the hill and undergoes the knife. It's Jesus. And by the way, all throughout all scripture, God promises the coming Messiah. By the way, when you hear Messiah, um, think of this as the word hero, God's promised hero who will make all things right. God's Messiah, king, hero, will be the savior of all the world. I mean, Psalm 86, verse 9. I could do this all, all day, by the way, put, put out these verses. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. All nations, all of them. Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will also make you a light of the nations. This is God speaking to Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Daniel 7, 14 tells us, And to him, which is the Messiah, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These are all prophecies of what Jesus would do and how he would bring redemption and renewal to the entirety of the world. And then in Malachi, uh, which is going to be the last book of of the Bible, or last book of the Old Testament that, that's waiting for the New Testament, waiting for Jesus to come. We, we read this in Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations all across the globe. So I think it's pretty plain. We can see that at the very cross of Jesus, we are seeing with this trilingual sign that this king reigning from his brutal tree being put to death is there to save the world. He's the long-awaited one who will bring healing and light to the world. This means that we as Christians are part of a kingdom that is for all of us. And we have this pension, this, this really twisted ability to make it a kingdom for some of us. For those that are like, like me. For those that look like me and think just like me. 
But this is a kingdom for every tribe, for every tongue, for every nation, for every skin color, for every dialect, for every ethnicity. This sign is a sign that at the cross, racism is condemned and crucified. It's right there in the text. And by the way, this is why Jesus gives his apprentices a great commission. Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. What does he say? He says, go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is our commission, to see this good news radiate across the entirety of the globe. This is the good news for all of us. For all of us. Not just the Jews, but for those who speak Latin and Greek and Mandarin and English and Bengali and Spanish and Arabic and Swahili. It's the good news for everyone. So again, the cross spoke in tongues. Before the church did, the cross spoke in tongues so the church could. And this is why we must be a global conscious people, a centrifugal, outward-going, mission-oriented people. Which is why before the sermon we had all those announcements that were pointing towards all those mission things that we are doing that are on the move. Now, I want to show us next, by God's grace, that this cross is for all of us in a different sense. In a different sense. I mean it's for all of us. Every aspect of our being. Every aspect. So follow, follow me here. Aramaic and Hebrew, the language of revelation, the language of signs and wonders, the language of God's law, let's, let's call that, if you would, just for a moment, religion. Latin, the language of policy, of politics, of military, it's a martial language, it was the language of Rome, it was the language the centurions spoke, it was the language Caesar spoke. And Greek, well, Greek was the language of philosophy. Greek was the language of popular culture, of the arts, of aesthetics, of sexuality. And I think there's something in here for us to see. That the cross isn't just for all nations, but for every aspect of our souls, all of our being. Jesus, the crucified king, is king over our religion. Jesus, the crucified king, is king over our politics and our power dynamics. Jesus, the king, the crucified one, is over our intellect, over our philosophies, our worldviews. He's king over our aesthetics, our arts, our entertainment, the stuff we fill our eyes and our imaginations with. And, and the cross of Jesus isn't just for our religious life. See, we, we so often compartmentalize our lives. And we have this compartment that's called faith. But the cross of Jesus is for the death and resurrection of the entirety of, of the human being. And I want to press into this because we are notorious compartmentalizers. We are notorious compartmentalizers. We often break the world into bits and pieces and seal them apart from each other. <clears throat> Compartmentalization, by the way, um, is a psychological term that's helpful here. Compartmentalization is a, it's a defense mechanism. 
It's a defense mechanism in which people mentally separate conflicting or discordant thoughts and emotions or experiences to avoid the discomfort of contradiction. And it has us living in what's called cognitive dissonance. Things don't quite gel, so there's this buzz, there's this this anxiety, there's this unsettledness within the human soul that rattles like a fluorescent light that's about to go out, you know what I mean? So let me get specific with this. Think of the Christian who's faithful to be here on Sundays and to sing loudly and to be in calm group and to serve in some area of ministry. But in private, the things he or she is, is watching on Netflix or looks at on their devices work to disavow Jesus as king. They partake of media that has objectified and sexualized and trafficked human beings. But we compartmentalize it, we label it as art or just a TV show or I need to check out or it's no big deal compartment put over here. Jesus is said to be Lord of their lives, but his sin-killing cross seems to have nothing to do with the Netflix queue at all. Or think of the human rights advocate who signs petitions and joins protests on Main Street, but then feeds the system of trafficking through their private use of pornography. Or think of the person who claims to be an apprentice of Jesus, and again, same things, faithful to be here on Sundays, in their calm group, serving. But when it comes to politics, when it comes to talking about the the geopolitical landscape, when it comes to another election year, the kindness of Jesus, the other-centered love of the king of the cross somehow just evaporates and is just gone from the conversation. In this category of politics and socioeconomic power dynamics, Caesar still seems to be Lord for many people. For many people who claim to follow Jesus. We bully, we beat down. We verbally brutalize this camp or that camp. We get utilitarian real quick and validate unchristlike and expedient means to get to the outcome that we want for ourselves, for our school board, for our state, or for our nation. Jesus is Lord, but not over this sphere. Compartmentalization is a favorite tool for addiction. Which is why when you're dealing with addiction or AA, so to speak, will, or other groups like AA will try to get you to realize and say things where you're integrating it into the fact that it's not just a compartment. It's, it's, a, it's a part of you that's killing all of you. And then with sexuality, we do this all the time. We say, Jesus is Lord. I want to follow the scriptures, but he can't have this sex bit. This is mine to define This is plastic, I can mold it whatever way I want. And too often the Western church has this idea of Jesus as Lord, um, that he's Lord over some internal wispy, like abstract bit of us. There's just like this wispy bit inside of us, like that's the religious stuff, right? But he's often not ruling or reigning over our politics and our cultural life. And We've bought into this deception so often that our faith can be personal but not public. can be intense and true but somehow not embodied. That it can be an app added to the structure of our lives and not a whole new operating system that changes everything. And Jesus of Nazareth 
king of the Jews is often written in Aramaic or Hebrew, so to speak, in our lives, over that, what we call that little religious bit, but he's not king over the Latin or the Greek of our lives. We're notorious compartmentalizers because this is what sin does. Sin breaks things apart. Sin vandalizes the, the, the image bearer. It breaks things apart and puts them into these pieces. It disintegrates us. This is what sin does. But the cross of Jesus is the great integrator. It integrates our soul that integrates us with our, our heavenly father by the power of the spirit because of the work of Jesus, then it integrates us as a body, as a people. We're, we're a family now. Guys, we're so different. And we have such different pasts, but he's integrated us as, as a family. He makes us whole. The cross makes us whole. Jesus didn't go to the places of the skull and, to, and bleed out just to give us a couple new thoughts. He didn't die. He didn't get nailed to a cross just to change a few convictions that we have. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion just to be Lord of our morality or just Lord of our Sundays or just Lord of when people are looking, right? Jesus didn't come to lead a political party to be presidents of our power politics. He didn't come to be merely some philosopher to just reorganize our intellect and our musings. And he didn't come simply to be some kind of content creator or artist or culture creator to entertain us with a spectacle. Jesus came to die. And he came to die because every aspect of our nature had to die. Enslaved to death, we needed to die that we might live. Jesus came to that unholy, death-stained place of the skull to make us holy, to conquer the death that has resigned or reigned in our mortal bodies because of sin, because of the sin that we've committed, because of the sin that's been done to us by others, and because of the sin that we have experienced and been defiled by just by being in this world. And this is what Paul talks about, by the way. This is so incredible. Did you know Paul talks about Pilate's inscription plate? Paul talks about it. It's it's kind of in a veiled way, but he talks about it. This is from Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Listen to this. And you, he's talking to followers of Jesus, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Titlos. Chirographon. It's the same thing that's over Jesus' head on the cross, that stood against us with its legal demands, the charges that were aimed at us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The canceling of this record of debt is a reference to our sins, the charges that are leveled against us, what we are guilty of. And instead of that thing hanging over us now, we have a plaque that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews who's now king of the world, that is the banner. And that's, so that's why he says, like, all these rulers and principalities, all the darkness, all, this, all those things out there in this world that want to shame you and say you're guilty, they have no power. They've been stripped of it because you are clean, you are innocent because what Christ has done. Though innocent, he died. Though guiltless, he was charged. 
for your offenses. And now you are set free. Jesus is Lord. See, if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord over all of us. Not just a component or two. That's just nonsensical because that wouldn't be a Lord. He's Lord of our bodies. He's Lord of our sex. He's Lord of our imaginations. He's Lord of our intellect. He's Lord of our wallets. He's Lord of our browsers. He's Lord of our ballots, Lord of our relationships, Lord of our taxes, Lord of our time, Lord of our technology. And, and so uh, there's a question I think we should ask. And, it, and it's this. I think we should ask ourselves this question. What compartments of my life do I need to consecrate unto King Jesus? What, what compartments of my life do I need to concentrate unto King Jesus? Uh, we're saved by grace through faith. He has saved us. But we are in process of becoming truly human, of becoming like Jesus, which means there's a bunch of old Adamic Adam stuff. Kind of sounds like a cuss word. Adamic stuff, like in us that needs to go, right? And we all have these compartments where we're like, this is mine. What, what area of your life do you need to consecrate? And when I say consecrate, what that means is set aside as holy and say, this is yours. This is yours. I, you know, I'm just thinking about this the last few weeks, and I've realized, like, I have this compartment this is a new revelation for me. Sorry, guys, you have a really dense pastor sometimes, like just really thick. But like, I have this compartment, and I didn't realize it. Like, I know his cross covers my guilt. And I know his cross covers my shame and does away with my shame. But I have this compartment. I have this compartment called sorrow. And I didn't realize for so long that the cross takes care of my sorrow, too. How slow am I? He not only clears up my guilt, he takes away my shame, but joy and delight come through him and what he's done. And the cross kills the despair and brings joy to sorrow. But for so long, it's like, this is mine. I identify as the melancholic. This is mine. And he's like, that is not who you are. That is not who you are. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, verse 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, and live a convenient, easy, comfortable life. And then on and on it goes. Sorry, I misread. I, I just, my print's small, you know. Um, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Look, Jesus is Lord. This is a call to come and die. Jesus is Lord, come die with us. How's that for a new mission statement, vision statement? Let's put that on our wall, see how many people come. Jesus is Lord, come die with us. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's to die to all the stuff that is of this culture of death and come to life to all that is of life in him. 
Follow Jesus. He is Lord. Come, die with us. Come, die with us. Friends, what needs to die? What compartments of your life do you need to consecrate unto King Jesus? For some of you, it's the Aramaic Hebrew bit. You have your irreligion, so to speak, your atheism, your agnosticism, some hold on the world that doesn't see him as God, or it's, or it's some version of religion that is bent and broken and a self-salvation project. And the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, needs to be written in Aramaic and Hebrew over your life. But for some of you, it's the Latin bit. You need to have your politics and your power crucified. Stop putting your trust in princes and in horses as though the only way forward is to vote the right person in. Jesus is king. And this isn't to say we shouldn't have opinions or vote. That's not, that's not that's all what I'm saying. But Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And for some of you, it's the Greek bit. You're participating in the culture of death around you through your eyes, through your senses, through your body, through your imagination. You're being shaped and formed by all those things. And you need Jesus as Lord written in Greek over your life. Look, the, the cross of Jesus is for all humanity. The cross of Jesus is for all humanity across the globe. And the cross of Jesus is for all of our humanities. And this is such good news. This is such hope because it's not like Jesus, again, saves that wispy bit inside you and then leaves you to deal with all the other garbage in your life. You know, your, your addictions, your, your, your lust, your anger. He just leaves you there to deal with that. No, no, no. The cross is for all of it. This is good news for everyone in this room. The cross of Jesus is for all humanity and all of our humanity, and he deserves all of us, all peoples, and all parts of our being. And as the Moravians used to say, that Christian community that was just obsessed with taking the gospel all across the globe, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering, and the reward of his suffering is all of humanity. And is all of us. So may the Spirit of God make you congruent. May He decompartmentalize you. May He make whole your fragmented soul. And may He be King of all of your being. Amen. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for uh, the joy of being able to, to be here with my brothers and sisters, and I ask that you would do something powerful in, in our hearts through the word by the power of your spirit as we come to this table of grace. Thank you, Lord, that you integrate all the broken bits, that this is good news for all of us. We love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.